0: welcome to In The Demo, a show about the stories that get told about groups, how those stories got made, what we think those stories get wrong, and why it matters. You hosts, Farah Bostic is the founder and head of research and strategy of The Difference Engine, a strategic insights consultancy focused on helping business leaders make decisions. Adam Piano, author and brand consultant and managing director of brand strategy at Arizona State University. This time, Farah and Adam are calling in reinforcements. You'll hear the voice of Rose Cameron, innovation principal and founder of Cameron Consulting. She was on the ground, conducting real research into the millennial segment for major brands before the name Millennial existed. You are now in the demo.
1: I'm Adam Murnow, Generation X. Uh,
0: and I'm Farah
2: Bostic, the latchkey kid generation.
1: Oh, that is a great one. That's nice. a great one.
2: Yeah. yeah.
1: I, I, am a, I was a latchkey kid. Were you? No.
2: <laughs> oh, you not. weren't? No. no. Yeah, for
1: part, for part of my life I was, yeah. I, I strongly <laughs> identify with that. And I think we talked about with Rose. That's an expression that has gone away.
3: And now, Rose Cameron. you brought up the term latchkey. Uh, I was doing a presentation at Northwestern Medical School in Chicago, and I brought up the term. I was talking about men and how their definition had changed, and I said a lot of the guys who were raised during the Gen X period were latchkey kids. The entire room looked at me like, what the heck are you talking about? That term was dead, by the time they were growing up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, it, t- it's so interesting to see the death of key terms. Right. Mm-hmm. Because contextually, they had no relation. Yeah. This
2: sort of surprises me that it's gone away since so many of us are alive who know, like two thirds of the country knows what it is. Maybe it is a term that's gone away because now we like criminalize people who leave their children alone. Oh, if um, they're in a
1: car for 10 minutes while you're at Target, you go to jail.
2: Yeah, which is wild because I have such strong memories of like sitting in the minivan in the parking lot of Joanne's Fabrics going, actually, I don't want to go in today, mom. I'm just going to sit here and read my book. Totally. And like, listen to my Walkman. <laughs> yeah. Well, just, <laughs> and it let, was just fine. Just lay in the backseat and look up at the ceiling. Like, Yeah, yeah exactly. Okay. Like it crack a window, cool. lock the doors. It's uh-huh. fine. Yeah. Nothing
1: bad's going to happen. It's okay. Nothing bad's going to happen. No. And there's no like, Somebody filming the whole thing on TikTok as the police take my mom away.
2: Yeah, yeah. But my mother also has told a story of like she would have me find a place to sit in the kind of um, canteen area of a shopping mall, um, mm-hmm. you know, the food the food court, and um, and like I would be the one left with the table and her purse, and it was like at some point i asked her like why why was i always the one left by myself at the table with your purse and she was like cuz i knew you'd yell at anybody who tried to take the table or the purse and i was like <laughs> that's interesting yeah. that's a lot of pressure <laughs> yeah but but you know i think probably accurate um yeah. on the whole i think that was probably true but yeah now i feel like that's the sort of thing where like some level of consternation would be expressed towards my parents for having left me at 11 years old or whatever sitting at the table oh, yeah. by myself. Um, but at the same time, I also have a strong memory of in that same mall, Washington Square Mall, in, in um, I guess kind of Tigard or Beaverton in, in Oregon, um, that uh, there was a boat show. This is where I'm sorry, I'm telling this story. There was a boat show in the mall and so, like, you, they had all these little speedboats and small sailboats and whatever set up inside the mall. And people were in the mall in the mall. It was a boat show. And so you could you could climb up and check out these boats. Oh, and I was climbing up onto one of these boats on the steps provided not not like some hooligan. And um, an older guy, I don't know how old he was in middle age, um, burnt me with a cigarette. <laughs> Because this is like also this, before yeah. they banned indoor smoking. <laughs> I was just going to say, there's so many elements of this that are not,
1: they're anachronistic. If I explained this to one of my kids, they would be like, what the hell? What are you talking about? You, there was yeah. a boat in a mall. You, no, there are multiple boats. Well, probably boats. once a month, there was some sort of boat or car show at that mall. And some, there's
2: some kind of exhibition thing for selling yeah, high-end and stuff. It's very
1: mall, normal yeah. for someone or multiple people to be just, just lighting a dart, just smoking away. Yep,
2: yep. Ugh. And so one of the risks you took in crowded spaces as a child in the early 80s was that you might get burned with a cigarette. <laughs> hey,
1: it's really your responsibility. Be vigilant. <laughs> oh,
2: God. Yeah. So, yes, I am uh, was not myself a latchkey kid, had a lot of friends who were. And so for those listening who don't know what a latchkey kid is, um, you were given a key to the house. Because you were coming home to an empty house after school, and some of those kids literally wore it like on a string around their necks, um, so that they wouldn't lose it. And those kids were referred to as latchkey kids. I feel like it's like a
1: a change in the terminology of hardware that we don't say latchkey anymore. Because even when I, even when I saw news reports and identified myself at whatever age I was, thirteen or fourteen, as a latchkey kid, I was like, but I don't really know what a latchkey is. Yeah, I don't think I I I have a key to the door. (laughs) right i don't
2: it sounds like some a term like 1920s Green yes. Depression
1: slang or something
2: a term definitely coined by the silent generation i think joe biden was in the meeting yeah. um and they they came up with that <laughs> but <laughs> but do you also feel like it was a thing that was really associated with divorce like being a latchkey had probably meant was. your parents were divorced
1: i think that was the one of the you know The hints or like the inference that you were supposed to get. My parents were not divorced but Mm -hmm. yeah I think that part of it was like there's it's a one parent household and you got to help you got to pitch in by coming home and opening the door yourself.
2: Yeah. Yeah. The thing that was also interesting in that kind of suburb was there was such a mix of like no you're going to go over to Joey's house after school because his mom is at home versus no you're just going to let yourself in. Make yourself a snack. You can watch TV. Get but your homework done. Whatever. Yeah. You can start your homework. And from like, I don't know, 10 was a reasonable age for that to start? Nine even? I think so. Yeah.
1: I think so. I mean, it's amazing we don't see more of it now with how much, how expensive childcare is. But it's so frowned upon. I don't think people feel comfortable doing it. I think they've been convinced you shouldn't. And I, I, of course, like... I understand you want someone watching your kids. You want to make sure your kids are safe. You want to make yeah. sure they're getting enrichment or whatever it is at any point. Mm-hmm. But I'm surprised we haven't seen more of it.
2: it. It is funny. I feel like it has become one of these other class divide things of you're either well off enough to afford childcare or whatever that will you know pick the kid up from school. And you know I have lots of friends, both parents work, and many of them have their kids are now at school, but they have still maintained a relationship with the nanny they yeah. had before the kids were school age, and they do the, the school run, the afternoon school run. And so they're with the kids for a couple hours a day while mom and dad, either one of them are, are getting home, and they trade off between the spouses, who's going to be home by seven and who's not. And then also, like a lot of schools are doing more like late pickup for parents. I think that's, that's another thing. So it's not, school's out at 2.45, and it's going to be four hours before anybody's home or three hours before anybody's but home. Our-
1: our middle school does it but they, they all charge. Mm-hmm. And even if you if you don't if you don't pay, which we don't, if you don't pick your child up within some window of time, they move them into that space and you pay. Charming. So if you're if you're twenty five minutes late, it's like you have to then go in the school and get them from the afternoon but, care. You, you, you have to you pay
2: a them. ransom for your children. Essentially. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah, and then, then I'm
1: like, do I even want this kid back? I'm like yeah, keep him.
2: <laughs> Meanwhile, you have women who like having no other options, put their kids in the car or set them up at the play, the fenced in playground across the street from the place they're interviewing for a job. Yeah. And And then get arrested. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's insane.
2: Yeah. So anyway, I think that's enough about Latchkey kids.
1: When we last left off. We have had quite a run.
2: We have. We to all kinds of people.
1: We got to talk to historians. Yes. We got to talk to Tyler. Who is amazing. We got to talk to Paul. Yes. Three amazing conversations in a row that I think have solidified our understanding of the background of the book and, thanks to Paul, some (laughs) areas that maybe they could have done it better. Yes. Maybe they could have had a different approach. (laughs) When we started this, we were looking at, we've been asking this question consistently, is where did the story turn?
2: Mm -hmm. And
1: part of it, is in the foundation of the size of this group as a consumer audience and how that changed over time. And you Mm -hmm. can, you can almost see it's like in millennials rising, they lay the the foundation there as about buying power and about market power. And this is going to be the big, they're going to be bigger than the baby boomers Mm -hmm. in like, you know, dollars per capita to spend or whatever, you know, however grisly metric um, (laughs)
2: economists. (laughs) Yes, yes. although those estimates humanizing people, right. And those estimates were wildly like $600 a year, $4,500 a year, like, okay, could be anything, no dollars a year.
1: All the dollars. Also, they were some of them were in kindergarten at the time. So it's pretty (laughs) tough to talk about their buying habits when what they want is Crayola crayons and chicken McNuggets.
2: It is weird to talk about children having income. Yeah, um, because like,
1: because <laughs> they don't.
2: yeah, and especially like in, particularly in this period pre child influencers on Instagram and TikTok, like they definitely didn't have income. <laughs> they they yeah. might have an allowance, um, but that you know <laughs> they're not getting taxed on it.
3: You know, grew up with them. So I went from working on Stride Right and researching what they were like as babies and toddlers, to McDonald's, working on how they evolved the approach to the Happy Meal, uh, then on to Nintendo, them as teens and tweens, uh, at, well, very much the tween and teen aspect. And then I was working on gender definition. So I did the largest ever um male study in the world in 2005 and discovered how men were evolving their definition very much based on generational drivers. And then the last bit was looking at them as parents. So I've literally watched them. And I think one of the things that you've probably seen is how much of this is actually the generation itself versus the life stage, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, because I think one of the flaws of a lot of research is that they don't include um, the other generations to say what is the same or different, right? It's like doing a gender study without doing the other genders, right? You can say this of both, right? But you didn't study them, so you're buggered, right? <laughs> um, so what I found and what my theory is is sure there was all of this stuff bubbling up around this generation Uh, from the marketing perspective there were two key drivers in my mind of why they became such a huge topic area of topic Uh, one was their sheer size they range between 22 to 27 percent of the population at any given time and reporting uh, so everybody was after this enormous potential audience to sell stuff to, and the other one was and and I'm very open about this, their parentage, okay so if you look at how could they be such an enormous population twenty seven percent of the population twenty two percent of the population, well, their parents were the boomers who were 25% of the population, right? Largest generation ever, who felt that they were going to redefine the world. Yes. Right? They were the kids there at Woodstock. They thought they were going to change everything. And as I've discovered in in several workshops, where I'll have boomers in the audience of the workshop, these people are really bitter and twisted that they did not change the world, right? Right. So they have delegated the changing of the world to their special snowflakes, their children. I love the idea
1: that <laughs> – he made me choke. I love the idea that their allowance is going to be like a huge driver of the economy. There's so <laughs> many. They're, they're going to take that lawn mowing money and they're going to like hoist up the gap as to be this super corporation.
2: Right. Right. That immediately makes me think about a project years ago I did for Citizens Bank, actually. And we talked to people about a variety of age ranges and levels of household income. I think they were all Citizens Bank customers or they were in within the footprint of Citizens Banks in the Northeast. And we had these great conversations about very much borrowing from that book the culture code i don't know if you ever read that one yeah. but like so what what's your earliest memory of money what's your earliest memory of either having it or earning it what was yeah. the what was like the first big thing you spent your money on what's your me- memory from childhood of going to a bank what's it like now and those kind of early the first dollar i ever got was probably given to me by a grandparent or a parent the first dollar i ever owned was from a paper route or mowing lawns or yeah. um, a lemonade stand or something like that. And then what was the first thing you spent your really spent your money on? It was like, it was very America, car, 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 car. And and what's the car represent? Well, that's freedom. Money is something you save up to buy freedom. <laughs> and then like my earliest childhood memories of going to a bank in the Northeast, I, I didn't have this experience as a kid. So I don't know if other people in the Pacific Northwest did, but the whole kind of passbook savings account
3: thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I had
2: that. We didn't do that. We certainly didn't do it through our schools. And a lot of people like in the Philadelphia area, they had memories of like school, did a field yeah, trip. Yeah, it was a common a
1: thing to teach that kind of like stewardship of your money
2: mm-hmm.
1: and participation as part of civics education.
2: That's great. I mean, we did not. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to overstate the case. It wasn't totally awe-inspiring, but it was also like a difference in the architecture of banks and like up to the early 90s where they were still... Especially again in the Northeast, like oak paneled and brass rails and yes. marble steps and things like that. And not they like. They smelled like banks. Right. And not like small uh, cubicle office spaces <laughs> with commercial carpeting and right. that kind of thing, which right. is what I remember. That... <laughs> but now it's like you ask people as adults, what's their relationship with their bank like? And one of the metaphors people use that I will always refer to is like the assistant principal in charge of discipline. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's the person who's just on your case all the time. Yeah. Everything you do is wrong. And they're constantly like trying to penalize you by withholding your money. The idea that these kids had a lot of money and that they were just sort of spending it willy-nilly is... I, I, I'm sure there were kids who did that. They're probably more affluent. But... That's not the stories we heard in that particular project anyway.
1: No, and Um, also as part of that projection of their scale as consumers, they were presented as, and you can see this in parts of Millennials Rising, but definitely in the millennial thought leadership that arose in the early 2000s into the 2010s, just pre-recession really, mm -hmm. was that they're this huge audience and there's a code to unlocking them. You know, th- this yes. this seventy million people is a safe, mm-hmm. and if you just know the code, is like it's like one part avocado toast and one
2: part like <laughs> Barney. You know, it's <laughs>
1: like I don't know if that's how it's going to work. I, I still I'm not sure that we can define everybody the same way. Um, yeah,
2: yeah. I think there's a couple of things here, and, and one is I'll sort of back up slightly to the conversation I had with Paul, which is you know part of the reason we talked to Paul Soldera about how to properly do segmentations and to kind of take a look at what we have surmised about the method that was used for the creation of the book Millennials Rising. And a lot of the stuff that gets cited in the press about millennials is that, like, first of all, that's just not a segment. (laughs) Like, if, If you were doing a segmentation study for a brand or a particular category, you would not base it solely on people's birth years. Like, it's just too big to be meaningful. But the other reason to talk to him about it is that you know, a lot of these kinds of pieces about how Gen Z feels about their financial prospects. There was a a report that came out the other day that was done by Edelman DXI, or I think that's what it's called, and for Intuit. And it's like, here's how Gen Z feels about their financial futures. And it's clearly a was a bespoke research project done by Intuit that they then agreed to take parts of it that were not specific to Intuit. And like, put out in the world for promotion so those those kind of brand stories trickle up but when they get trickled up they get trickled up in these big segments like gen z as opposed to the actual segments like you just know intuit is does not have a segmentation that's like gen z (laughs) gen y right (laughs) whatever
1: yeah and so when when cnn i want to be specific and not say the media when washington (laughs) post or the new york post who we called out in one of the earlier (laughs) episodes puts millennials in the headline. The data they're pulling from is an, a total extrapolation of you know, some smaller segmentation study that happens to have millennials in it, you know, in that age range, but they were also banking customers, or they were also like coffee consumers, or they were also recipients of some sort of healthcare. People don't do research of 70 million people. You, you just don't do it. No, it's and- not fruitful.
2: No, we, we did a project that we still haven't fully reported out a couple of summers ago where we surveyed 1,600 people across the U.S. It was designed to be demographically representative of the U.S., but we did bump up samples um, so that we would have readable sample sizes for Black and Hispanic groups and also younger people. And when we got one version of the report analysis back, they tried to kind of look at it by generations. And they were like, there are no meaningful differences between (laughs) Gen Z and millennials and Gen Xers and baby boomers on this. And I was like, I wasn't expecting there to be. What we do then is we do regression analysis to figure out what are the actual clusters that represent a segment. And it winds up being this is a study about decision making. So like, there are people who are fearful and have had bad luck. And so they are extremely cautious. There are people who have kind of danced through their lives and things have generally worked out, and so they're pretty optimistic. And then there's like a group that tries to be as rational as possible and as fact-based as possible, and they really like talking to experts, but they don't wanna spend a ton of time on this. So they have like a natural internal clock (laughs) cutoff point where it's like, I have collected enough data, it's time to act, and the result of the action will teach me what to do next love those guys, but they're a little crazy in their own way. And then there's this other group that's like, I have to ask everyone I know what they think. And then I have to feel really insecure because I don't know what to do. And then finally, I will just act because I don't know what else to do. Because time is
1: up. up. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You're gonna hit the red button. They don't really tie to demographics. Like the Pollyanna-ish group tended to be a little more female and a little bit older. The pessimistic group tended to be even older. They also tended to be more divorced or more widowed. Like they'd had bad things happen to them. It wasn't that they were 65 years old. It was bad things that happened to them. They (laughs) had had other factors that had occurred during their life that influenced their decision-making and their approach. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, and and that is part of the story of the millennial myth is – it's all good. It's all good. You know, the the, mm-hmm. the hockey stick is going up, up, up. Oh, there's going to be 100 million of these amazing consumers. are going to change the world. Thank you, Tyler. You know, it's your time to shine. Let's go. <laughs> and then the Great Recession comes and it's like, well, actually, we have to start saving money. Yeah. We can't just buy a new iPhone every two months because mm-hmm. uh, Steve Jobs or Tim Cook tells us to. And in fact, I'm watching, you know, the devastation of my any saved wealth or my parents saved wealth. Mm hmm. And that's, it kind of pulled the bottom out of that projection, changed mm-hmm. the projection. The scale of the audience has not changed. I mean, it went from 100 million in the 90s to what it actually turned out to be closer to 70 million millennials in the US.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So that did that did shrink, but that, that wasn't revealed in 2010. Yeah, no. We knew that
3: before.
2: I think that's that the size thing matters a lot. And- It's just funny because obviously, you know, we've read things and had conversations and the Millennials Rising book makes this argument as well that by the time they write Millennials Rising, they're talking about Gen X as being the product of a birth dearth and that, you know, we've talked about this before, that like baby boomers were actively avoiding having children. And so that's how you get this small generation, except that when you actually look at the real numbers, there are about the same number of Gen Xers as baby boomers and about the same number of millennials as baby boomers and about the same number now of gen zers as baby boomers with like little wiggles here and there like yeah. slightly fewer gen xers slightly more millennials slightly fewer than millennials gen zers but that's because their parents are gen xers and there were slightly fewer of them to begin with like but there're more <laughs> of them like we are i like it makes me wonder where these like we've dropped below one in replacement data that you come across from time to time is coming from i'm like how are we dropping below one when I'm seeing like each of these generations are like incrementally larger than their parents' generation? Maybe, maybe what we're encountering there also is just falling life expectancy and early childhood problems because we have a yeah. country that doesn't care about children and or health care. Um, yeah. 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 Or food I don't know.
1: regulation. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I'm sorry, Adam. Did you want the world to be safe? Man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm picking You're a Gen Xer. Yeah, I'm not You're supposed, supposed to, care about to anything. know it's not. Yeah. <laughs> the kind of continuous, like, mind blown, there are so many millennials. And it's like, well, there's about the same number of millennials as there were boomers. <laughs> like that never recedes as, as a big hallmark of the millennial myth. And so it's always this like, it could be an onrush of massive prosperity because they have all this disposable income. And there's a quote in Millennials Rising. I was looking through it um, yesterday, the kind of commerce. Rocket Cash is the name of the chapter. They're talking about how basically, you know, (laughs) all of their income is disposable. And I'm like, first of all, it's not Because they're 16. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 12-year-olds don't have income (laughs) in general. And secondly, like, yeah, they have roofs over their head. Their parents buy their clothes and their food. Like, they don't own cars. They don't have mortgages or credit cards. Like, yeah, all of their income is disposable. But some of that is probably also going to things like... You know, buying their lunch at school or whatever. I And mean, there's all kinds of things that are going on with how kids spend their cash. And the other thing is like talking about this. The reason the size of the generation matters is if you take that $600 or $4,500 a year that they supposedly had as discretionary spending, multiply that by $100 million people, and you mm-hmm. start to get to massive dollar amounts. And so you think about them as having incredible purchasing power, just because of the number of dollars they spend as a yes. group.
1: What you're defining, and the problem that you pointed out about, you know, how these these parts of the urban legend, you know, the birth dearth for Gen X, or this huge tidal wave of consumers and this projected scale of that buying power, is the millennial industrial complex, as we call it. The authors of Millennials Rising were given some degree of spotlight and some degree of prominence and some degree of attention.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I'm sure they were speaking at conferences and invited to think tanks and writing white papers and things as part of that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it birthed a generation of people who wanted to do the same thing, but it also came of age at the dawn of SEO and gaming Google Mm-hmm. So you really only needed one good quote or data point that Google could find or that somebody desperately Googling yeah. and finding 20 content marketing articles would be like, oh, okay, here's a stat. Mm-hmm. Let me just copy this. I uh, don't need any of that context, even though it's not sourced. It's like, here, here we go. And you just cite the website. You're not mm-hmm. citing the actual research. right? There's a whole generation of people that wrote content, created purported research Mm-hmm. That we're just trying to get some of that spotlight, yep, for whatever business they were in, whether it's speaking or marketing or whatever else, to be considered an expert on this seventy million person group
2: it's so funny, like the throwback nostalgia of looking through that chapter and the the chapter before rocket cash is also about kind of pop culture stuff and how like 96 97 there's a music industry recession where people aren't buying as yeah. much music and that the theory in that is like well the young kids these days they don't like grunge they like i don't know singing along with barney and then this kind of discussion about in general marketing at millennials as children was a huge industry and that the people in the rooms making those decisions, I think in the phrase of the book is like none older than boomers. And so you have baby boomers seeing their children, essentially, as a group of people that are an audience and that they want to tap into now. We also have the marketing myth of loyalty, that if I get you when you're young, I'll have you when you're old, when that is a myth that doesn't, play out. And the other part of it is those baby boomer parents who are putting their kids down with baby Einstein, you know, Mozart recordings and whatever, wanting their kids to have a wholesome pop culture. And so manufacturing for them Disney kids and the kind of new Mickey Mouse Club and rebooted boy bands and all of that stuff and aggressively marketing it at those kids, where if you really like NSYNC, you probably don't love, I don't know, Nirvana or whatever. Like those things don't go together. Right. And, and your
1: marketing's not going to convince you to like them both.
2: No. And, and marketing doesn't want to convince that group of people to like both. They want nice, tidy media segmentations. They want Gen X <laughs> to like Nirvana and they want Gen Y to like
3: whatever Some... in sync. We had major shifts on how people looked at children during the millennial developmental face so the introduction of tweens that was never a concept before um the uh, things actually moved much earlier people started allowing their children to define their style at the age of three to four we were seeing that was stride right that had not been allowed before um so that was the first kind of self-determination at such an early age um so we are seeing a new approach to childhood defined by the boomers, and I think that's when they were saying, I'm creating an entity that's going to be significantly different from past generations. And
2: I don't know, do, do, th- do a lot of 13-year-olds want <laughs> want the like goth emo <laughs> you know, grinding guitars uh, sort do. of experience? Some do. I was one of them, <laughs> but, but again... <laughs> Gen X. (laughs) But by the time that this is coming around, like everything is so manufactured specifically for this group and force fed to them that no wonder that's what they quote unquote like. And I think this is the other part that has always driven me crazy about both the media industry and the marketing business is they think they are chasing consumers and doing what the consumers want. That like if we're doing link bait or we're doing whatever, you know, whatever it is we're doing, it's because that's what the audience wants. Right. We're being useful. Yeah. The problem is they are manufacturers of culture who want to pretend that they're not in the manufacturing business. Yeah. And like they want to act like we're just a mirror. And it's like, no, you're not. you are creating the culture the cultural menu for people to select from and you are making heavy-handed recommendations that if you're this age and this totally. income and this ethnicity then you will like these things trust us right. you will like them and the other thing that's interesting about millennials is they come of age in the 300 plus channel universe where content is segmented so they're coming home and watching disney kids or nickelodeon or mtv there is a channel that says
1: i am the channel for you
2: Yeah, exactly. And so you are getting custom content aimed at a whole age cohort. And that's all you know. So why would you why would you know about anything else? This is how we market to kids now in general. I mean, you see the exact same thing with Gen Z and like, I don't know, One Direction and Harry Styles and whatever, like all of that stuff is a, a continuation of that same kind of marketing plan. But it's, it's fascinating going back to that period where it, they like wholesome stuff and they like, you know, they, they like musicians that also are good people who have good relationships with their parents, like literally a line in right. the book is something like that. When you're
1: 12, it's like, that's the right answer that you're supposed to give.
2: Exactly. And then some interesting, like, kind of retconning, Abercrombie and Fitch, for example, is a, is a player in one of these chapters. And it's like, well, you know, they're doing this thing where it's essentially preppy clothing, And by the way, if you haven't listened to the Articles of Interest season on American Ivy, which is the original name of preppy fashion that Avery Truffleman makes, she used to be uh, 99% invisible. It's really good. It's like a history of where preppy style came from and how it kind of keeps coming back and never stops being relevant. Um, Oh, check it out. So Abercrombie & Fitch is doing that, but they're like layering this veneer of um, old enough to drink old enough to send naked selfies. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. I, I, I worked there in the 90s and it's, it was like, oh. oh, the clothes are all very preppy, <laughs> but the the posters and like having <laughs> grabbing one of the guys that I worked with and being like, all right, you got to get out front, take your shirt off. And it's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> what you yeah. I to stand out in the Cambridge side Mall with his shirt off and like wave people in. Like, what? I, what I you remember doing?
2: that there was an Abercrombie and Fitch on the corner of uh, Houston and Broadway. <laughs> And I remember like cold days where they were sending those dudes outside with no shirts on to stand out in front of that A and F. But like the interesting retcon is like, well, things were on the downward slide for them. And I'm like, not for a while. Like no. they were doing pretty well kind of up until the recession. Yeah. And Abercrombie and Fitch is still a brand that A is around and B that like European tourists make sure to hit when they come to New York City.
1: Yeah, it still has that same reputation.
2: Yeah. And and it probably that's more to do with Avery's Wheelhouse, which is the American Ivy tradition, but the idea that it wasn't wholesome enough for these millennials, and that's why it took a dive when like, all brick and mortar retail took a dive in don't, the late 2000s. Don't try to use logic, Farah.
1: It's about... These millennials they all think the same way and the way that they think is very straightforward and, and one-dimensional
2: I think at this point a thousand episodes in Adam that it's clear what my bias is which is that I can explain <laughs> all of these things through something other than de- generational demographics <laughs> yeah, you might be
1: right you might be right about that but it you know we're we there is the expert that came from marketing and yeah, they're, they're trying to shape culture, but there was also the other side of it, which was the HR element. And Mm, mm -hmm. not only do they have to be good buyers and good consumers, good shoppers, and we understand their values, but we need them to work because even though they have at 12 years old, they already have bottomless disposable income. We need them to be good employees because Mm -hmm. we need them to generate endless amounts of cash that they can spend on Abercrombie and Fitch or, or other things that they find more pure and wholesome. Yeah. And so that uh, SHRM world (laughs) of like HR experts and management experts talking about millennial preferences and, well, they got a trophy in Little League 15 years ago. So now you have to give them a trophy every day that they show up to work on time.
2: Yeah. And that also is part of, you know, we've talked about this in other contexts, that the beginnings of that story around 2000, the belief was these essentially good kids who are overprogrammed and, you know, all of that, are going to be that as workers. They're going to be hardworking, and they're going to be ambitious. And trust authority. And trust authority. And so that's what you have to deal with slash look forward to boomers and Xers who will be working with or managing these people as they come into the workforce. And that sounds good-ish for a minute. And then they like start to get closer to actually graduating from college and going to work. I I actually didn't go looking for this, and I probably should have. Were there equivalent things that were what the millennial blue collar worker is going to be like, because I feel like all of these pieces are actually the millennial white collar worker.
1: You know, it's funny. I haven't looked for it. So we will pin that as a follow up. But yeah, all the content I have ever read, which is a a lot (laughs) um, has (laughs) been white collar. It's been office drones. It's been how to what type of incentive program or what type of office culture they want, the mm-hmm. open floor plan, all that nonsense that that came with them. There's not a lot about blue collar or, I mean, I bet you if you went into those trade publications or those trade organizations, there, there probably is content, but it doesn't get served generally and I've never searched for it. So shame on me. Well,
2: but I think that's another part of the the trappings of the millennial myth or that they acknowledge that there are non-affluent millennials, but they don't deal with them. Yeah. Again, going back to the book, they sort of like, to be sure, the, the to be sure clause, to be sure, not all millennials experience the rising tide lifting all boats of the 90s economically, but those who did are going to expensive Disneyland vacations and going to Manhattan and shopping at Prada, and we, we want to make sure we talk about them.
1: Yeah, and, and in the 70 million, they don't, because of the to be sure clause, and the way they leave it hanging throughout the book, they don't tell you how much smaller to be sure makes that segment.
2: Right. But if if you just go on like college graduation stats, you're basically saying goodbye to like, what, 60, 65 percent of millennials? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And, <laughs> and and even a wilder number than that, we would have to it would be a topsy turvy path to figure it out because because of the Great Recession, a lot of people yeah. took longer than four years or right. stopped out. It's not quite the straight line of that 30 to 35 percent attainment that we would normally expect.
2: Right. But so then I guess the question after that is, as ever, we start out with this rosy picture of these upper middle class, college educated, mostly white millennials coming into the workforce, hardworking, ambitious. You're going to have to tell them to take time off. You're going to have to tell them to put that phone down. The Getty clip art of millennials with their phones, you know, lying in bed, looking at their phones. I am guilty of using that in slides back in like 2005. (laughs) But then once again, we have we have the great turn where Maybe they're not that great. Maybe they're kind of a pain.
1: Yeah. They're not all like they're cracked up to be.
2: Yeah. And I think you, it turns you, out maybe people sp- are dimensional. Yeah. I think you spend spent a little more time with some of those SHRM reports than I feel. I, I have a limited stomach for people wanting to blame young people for not knowing things. Uh, well,
1: they're young yeah. Of course, I mean, it, it does become a double edged sword where what a lot of those what a lot of those white papers and a lot of that research will tell you is you know, you have to create a culture that's really welcoming and really inclusive. But Mm. then the downside is now you have a culture that's really welcoming and really inclusive. And it starts (laughs) to become, the story starts to turn from like how to attract those people into like, look at the bed you've made for yourself, sucker. Like, (laughs) (laughs) sorry, boomer. Um, A lot of those stories and a lot of the the narrative that gets crafted there, and this is really where it starts to turn. you, You know, you pointed out, you referenced Rose where she mentioned a lot of the research she was assigned was by boomers trying to understand their kids mm-hmm. or, or boomer leaders in the C-suite trying to understand their workforce as a proxy for understanding their kids, mm-hmm. you know? And yeah. man, you can't,
3: <laughs> your kid is one person. I really think that we cannot undervalue the fact that they wanted to change the world. That was their role in life, okay? Mm -hmm. That was the role of that generation. And when we asked the same question of millennials, they answered the same way. Mm -hmm. They said, our generation is fundamentally going to change the world, right? And I think that that was what their parents had given them as a legacy Mm -hmm. and had imposed upon them. And now you've got a group of people who, you know, have that kind of defining their generation for, you know, whatever it's worth. And now I think they they may be taking control control of it into their own hands and redefining what their parents imposed upon them. And it's far more organic. It's far more flexible. It's far more... Uh, about human interaction in many cases you know when you take it away from those spots that you were talking about Mm Farah I find that a great many of the millennials that I interact with and that is very much its own test bubble Mm -hmm. okay are very much about community are very much about connecting with their people because this is very important this was the first generation to grow up with group learning exercises okay Prior to that, we had always had individual learning to manage the huge volumes of students coming through the schools. They had to create group learning exercises for the first time ever since the caves. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so our people, our millennials are much more open to learning and growing as groups versus individual competition, which their parents were very much at the forefront of.
2: Well, and I think it's also the point in time, especially as you get closer to like, get closer to like 2008, 2010 period, you have fewer and fewer of silent generation, greatest generation in the workforce. And so their kind of like man in the gray flannel suit (laughs) kind of ideas about what going to work was like, that is, that's over. And so I think Rose also had an interesting comment about like boomers finally had the opportunity to create a work environment they wanted to work in and could use as their excuse this incoming wave of millennials who would expect things to be different. But like open plan offices and casual Fridays and companies who would do matches for employee charitable activities. And more creative companies and smaller tech companies having, like, a keg in the kitchen or whatever. Like, those are boomer inventions. I I, right. <laughs> I, I remember them from my dad's days in, in high-tech companies in the 80s. Like, that was just a feature. Like, I, I seriously remember my dad going to work when he worked at, I think I've talked about this before, ADP with the cool globe thing with the electricity in the middle. Like, yeah. that place he wore suits. And then he worked at a series of tech companies where sometimes he wore suits and sometimes he didn't. And then he went to work at Intel, where it was casual Friday every day. And then there was sort of this moment where even he was like, I feel (laughs) frumpy and schlumpy all the time. I need some new clothes. And like, I can't can't feel
1: like professional in a t shirt anymore. I need to get my. You need to get my act together. Here.
2: Exactly. And so he went and got some like nice sweaters and nicer trousers or whatever to wear to work. <laughs> but even but, you know, like these were cultures where if you came to work in a suit, they'd be asking about like, you got, got an interview, <laughs> you know. Uh. Um, and so that culture, like, again, not invented by millennials, but sort of wink and a nod invented for millennials. Yes, but Rose also brought up the point of like, particularly I think this was true in creative agencies and, and tech startups of like, we need to build this from the ground up as a place where, and again, I don't know, like, is this push or pull? Like the whole story of how they were always on and always had their phones on them and were always connected to the internet and hardworking and ambitious. And so therefore, we need to make this a comfortable place for them to live, not just to work. Yeah, And so we need... Kitchens with free food, and we need ping pong tables and overstuffed sofas, and you know, places you can hide and take a nap, and (laughs) all
1: of that. I've never even thought about that. And all the times we've talked about it, that the, the research that they were buying into said these people have a predisposition to be workaholics, and they'll always be plugged in, they're always on the internet, they're always online. And so the response wasn't like, well, we have to protect them from themselves. It was like, oh, then how do we put comfy your chairs in so they'll work 16 hours a day <laughs> yeah,
2: until exactly. they like
1: flame out? Well,
2: and, and that also then I think is might, might be a clue about why you had, and Tyler made this observation as well, of like one of her descriptions of millennials was people who cared about physical and mental well-being and mm-hmm. yet also struggled with anxiety and depression and other mental health crises. That's and why, why like, they care. Yeah, right. because <laughs> they were sold this bill of goods about like, if you're hardworking and ambitious and always on and plugged in and the promise of the Internet is being always connected to the whole world and that's a net good thing, you'd be exhausted, too. And you'd be yeah. anxious, too. And to be honest, we all are. So like we're, we're living just in that say, world. I'm not kind of a millennial. Um, yeah. <laughs> but i think I'm trying I think... to stuff this back in the bottle. <laughs> exactly. But I, I think like a little bit of, a, of an advantage that older generations have is that um like, that wasn't an always-on expectation. Yeah. That, like, some of us remember our parents having jobs that were literally, you know, eight to five, nine to five, whatever they whatever the hours were. Those were the hours. And they didn't bring work home. And they weren't expected to take a phone call at eight o'clock at night from their boss. And they weren't getting text messages all weekend about things. And, yeah. like, that there was a weekend. <laughs> and so, you know, that that... that that was not something that, you know, until it's like 98, 99, 2000, that's not something that I grew up with as like an expectation or and certainly not a goal of like your job is to just always be working.
1: No, I don't think until the BlackBerry. That's probably right. <laughs> when, it, when it When you could get email. Yeah, yeah. Then it was like, oh, no. Good news, you can get email. Bad news, you can get email.
2: I know. And yet I still say the BlackBerry Pearl is my favorite smartphone that I've ever had.
1: People love it. People want their BlackBerry. They want the keyboard back. Yeah. Yeah. And they want that little. I just love that little thing. I don't know why. I (laughs) did. I never had a BlackBerry. My wife had one and it's, Ah. she still gets like.
2: Well, I mean, one of the things about growing up in a kind of gearhead household um, is that I've had nokia smartphones i had the blackberry pearl at work i had a uh, what was it a samsung blackjack or something at one point oh yeah i had i had palm trios um we had microsoft as a client so we had to use microsoft operating system (laughs) um things the palm trio was like a brick until you go to japan in which case all of a sudden it becomes the most amazing device you've ever owned (laughs) because it works really well on their networks um and uh, I was like, oh, this this yeah. thing suddenly became valuable to me yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on the Narita Express. Yeah. And, then, um, and then I got my, in 2007, I took my parents to Hawaii and my mom gave me an iPhone because she was working at at and at the time.
1: Oh, and that, then you never look back.
2: Yeah. 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 AT, it's been an iPhone ever since.
1: Yeah. There's no, <laughs> once you get there, it's like, what am I doing? Yeah. You can put, put whatever folding thing on. Stop it. Yeah, Stop this, this is it. I don't, I don't no need thing. to fold anything. No,
2: though. Do I? So I do miss those we, little tiny Nokia's. When you see those in like period TV shows, the little
1: chocolate bar ones. I yeah, love I
2: them. I miss I them. They I even my like T nine. <laughs> oh, the T nine was great. Kids today so, don't know about T nine.
1: No. So I'm glad we talked about the workplace because in our next conversation, we're going to pick that up a little bit as we mm-hmm. talk about the the idea that they millennials were all these idealists and figure out mm-hmm. how that part of the story got subverted. And again, it's a combination of HR, marketing, essentially lies, <laughs> corporate mm-hmm. greed. And so we'll pick that up in the, uh, in the next episode.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think it'll also be interesting to kind of dig a little under the, what I kind of call it voice, um, in the spirit of What's that book? Like Exit Voice and Loyalty or something like that? Like the voice part of the millennial story is a big one, which is that they want to have a say, right? They get that job. They want to have a say. They're at school. They want to have a say. They're a consumer. They want to have a say. And it's kind of both celebrated as this new consumerism, this new way of working, and then is also like, oh, there's such pains. And Um, deriding. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, we can't decide whether we want people to be their own best advocates or just to shut up and take it. And that that sort of maybe that is the actual story of millennials is that the, like the wider culture can't decide whether we want to actually get actualized <laughs> or whether we would prefer to kind of default to serfdom. Like I
1: don't I think know. it depends on
2: where you're seated. yeah, yeah, that's probably
1: As really we're
0: learning, true. yeah. on the next episode of in the demo, Farah and Adam look at how a generation universally described as idealists was expected to fix everything from business to government to the environment. I'm your robot host, Eliza. Please be kind. In the demo is produced by Farah Bostick and Adam Piano, with support from The Difference Engine. Music by Omega Man, under the Creative Commons license. Go to in the podcast.com for behind the scenes research and supporting information.